Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. The science of pride, authentic pride and hubistic pride, is the topic of this edition of Radio Curious. Our guest, Dr. Jessica Tracy, is the author of Take Pride, Why the Deadliest Sin Holds the Secret to Human Success. Tracy is a professor of psychology at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada, where she directs the Emotion and Self Lab as part of her work. In Take Pride, Jessica Tracy explains her research, partially conducted in the most rural areas of the West African nation of Burkina Faso, in Athens, Greece, among athletes who participated in the 2004 Olympic Games, and with blind athletes at the Paralympic Games. Her findings substantiate that pride is an emotion experienced and similarly expressed by all human beings, chest expanded, shoulders back, and broad smile. With pride as a cross-cultural human emotion, I became curious as to why pride is considered a sin by some. So when Jessica Tracy and I visited by phone from her office in Vancouver, British Columbia on November 11, 2016, we began when I asked her why some people consider pride to be a sin. Jessica Tracy, welcome to Radio Curious. Thanks so much for having me. So the title to your book leads to an interesting point of departure. You say, take pride, and why the deadliest sin holds the secret to human success. So my question is, why is pride a sin beyond ecclesiastical dominations uh, uh, from some theorists? You know, I I actually agree with you. I don't think it's a sin. Uh, You know, I think uh, that was used in the title simply because it has that famous... um, Recognition, so you know it has been called a sin by many, as you say. The Bible called called pride a sin. Uh, a number of religious scholars have talked about it as sinful. So you know, I think we were using that, but I wouldn't say it's a sin. But it does have um, a negative side to it. We found that actually there are two different kinds of pride, and one of them, which we call hubristic pride, is really a form of arrogance. It's really about sort of self-aggrandizement, thinking that you're better than others. Um, and it is linked to a number of problematic outcomes in terms of antisocial behavior, uh, poor friendships, poor relationships, uh, aggression, that kind of thing. Tell us about your research that showed there are two different kinds of pride. To figure out that there were two different kinds of pride, we did a number of studies uh, with undergraduates mainly, um, who we asked to talk about what they felt like when they felt pride, to talk about what they thought about when they thought about pride. And we got a whole bunch of pride-related words and feelings. And, and then we just looked at how those words cohered in terms of people's experiences, which words they tended to feel uh, together and which words they didn't. And these were words like accomplished, achieving, productive, as well as words like confident, uh, self-worth, and then, and then words like arrogant, egotistical. Um, pretentious. And what we found using various kinds of statistical analyses that we use is that they clustered into two pretty distinct categories. And where on the one hand, you'd have all these words like confident, achieving, and accomplished lumping together. On the other hand, words like arrogant, egotistical, and conceited lumped together. Um, and so that's, that's pretty good evidence that at least in the way people experience pride and in terms of how they think about it, it is two different things. 
And we then found that people who tend to feel these two different kinds of pride really are quite different from each other. Um, people who tend to feel the first kind of pride, which we end up calling authentic pride, these people tend to be high in self-esteem, uh, agreeable, they're nice to others, they care about others, uh, and they're generally popular and, and sort of well-liked. People who tend to feel hubristic pride are actually quite different. Um, they tend to be aggressive, disagreeable, not particularly conscientious. They're not particularly hardworking. Um, they're not necessarily people who accomplish a lot. They want to have power over others, but they don't really work hard to get it. And, and they tend to have trouble with relationships. They tend to be disliked and, and prone to anxiety and depression as a result. So tell us about the research that you did, uh, both with the Olympic uh, game athletes uh, and in the uh, remote areas of the Northwest Central African Republic of Burkina Faso. Yeah, so um, we did research to try to figure out whether pride is a human universal, whether people all over the world kind of see it the same way. And um, we began by looking at how pride is expressed nonverbally, and we found that in, in the U.S., people recognize pride from a, a very particular nonverbal expression. Basically, it's when you see someone with their chest puffed out and, and their hands on their hips and their head tilted up a bit and smiling. People know that's pride, and we found that was the case with American college students. We found American children saw it the same way. We went to Italy and found that Italians recognized it that way. But to really know whether this is a universal signal of pride, we need to look at people who are totally cut off from the Western world, right? People who couldn't learn about it from, from Americans, because it's certainly possible otherwise that it's just something that, you know, we in our culture use in this manner. And so to do that, we went to Burkina Faso, and we worked with a group of individuals living there, and they really lived in what anthropologists call a small-scale traditional society. So living on the land in mud huts with no electricity and plumbing, in very much the same way as their ancestors have for, for millennia. And we were able to find a group of 40 of these individuals who had no formal education and couldn't read or write. And this makes them a particularly sort of ideal sample for this study because they're very unlikely to have somehow had a chance to see a pride expression from American culture, right? They don't get American magazines. They don't see American movies. And so that means that if they recognize the pride display in the same way that our American subjects do, it would be very likely to indicate that this is a human universal. And that's exactly what we found. When we showed them photos of the pride expression, they called it pride. Um, so that's nice evidence that this is likely to be something that people all over the world recognize in the same way. Now, that said, what we don't know is whether people all over the world actually display this expression when they're feeling pride in the same way. And so to figure that out, we looked at the Olympics. Here's a situation where you have people from countries all over the world, and if they win at the Olympics, if they win a medal, they're going to feel a tremendous amount of pride and potentially show it uh, in the same way. And so my collaborator had access to photos taken by an official Judo Federation photographer who's photographing the Olympic Games Judo competition in 2004. And so this guy had amazing photos. You know, he was on the mat with these athletes from the moment that each match completed for several seconds after he was just snapping away. So we had these moment-by-moment -moment images, and all we had to do was code the extent to which these people in these photos uh, who had just won a match were displaying the behaviors that we had previously found to be associated with pride. And again, that's, that's exactly what we found. So people from countries all over the world responded to success by displaying this pride expression. Um, there was no cultural variation, so no matter what country people were from, they, they showed this expression. And then we looked at the Paralympics. Um, and the Paralympics are great because here we had blind athletes, right? The Paralympic Games include a blind judo competition, 
And there was even a subsample of congenitally blind athletes, people who were born blind and therefore have never been able to see. And that's really important in this case because these are people who uncontroversially, they've never seen a pride expression, right? There's no, there's no argument about that. And when we looked at the, what they did in response to this success experience, they too showed the same pride expression. Professor Jessica Tracy, let's assume that we have an infinite number of cultures on Earth. Okay. So what you're saying is that pride is expressed similarly, uh, regardless of the culture within the human species. Yes, that's exactly right. So with that information, how do we use it for future uh, human success? As in the subtitle of your book, Why the Deadliest Sin Holds the Secret to Human Success. The fact that pride is universal doesn't necessarily mean that it's good for our success. That's sort of a separate issue. The fact that it's universal tells us that it's likely to be evolved. It's likely to be part of human nature. And that's really important because it means that pride serves an adaptive function in in all likelihood. And so what I argue in the book and, and what I think there's good evidence for is that pride evolved to serve the adaptive function of helping people achieve high status. And, and the way that it does that is, is in part that it motivates us to succeed. Basically, the reason that we work hard to try to succeed in, in many different ways is because we want to feel proud of ourselves. And, and we evolve to, to, to want that. We evolve to have this sense of self that we care desperately about, that we want to promote, and that we sort of want, to, want other people to, to feel great about. And, and what all those feelings are, when we feel good about who we are, is, is that's pride. And so, essentially, the desire to have those feelings is what pushes us to work hard to achieve. How about pride in other um, animals in the animal kingdom beyond the kind of animals that humans are? You know, I don't think there's any evidence that animals other than humans experience pride. Um, Animals other than humans do show a dominance display, Um, And and I think that is the precursor of pride. So I think our pride, which requires a complex sense of self and the ability to sort of think about who you are and who you want to be and realize that you're reaching your full potential, something that animals can't do, our pride, I think, did originate in this non-human dominance. So if you think about chimpanzees, if you have a dominant chimp and he wants to make it clear to everyone else that he's the dominant, that you shouldn't mess with him, he's going to engage in a specific behavior, and it's known as the bluff display. He's going to stand upright on his hind legs, which is not how chimps normally stand. He's going to puff his chest out, and he's going to make himself look bigger. His fur will even get piloerected, which means standing up on end, adding to this large appearance. And if you look at a chimp showing the bluff display and a human showing pride, it's actually it's hard to miss the similarity. They look alike in, in many ways, given that these are two different species. It's, it's almost remarkable. And so I do think that's where our pride expression comes from, is from these non-human dominance displays. But like I said, in humans, it is very different. It's much more about an understanding of the self, the sense that the self is becoming uh, the kind of person that, that you want to become, the sense that others are realizing that as well, and, and you're realizing it your own self too. And it typically occurs after an achievement, after a success, you know, after some kind of victory, whereas with chimps, it's actually a threat display. It's a way of kind of before a fight sending the message that whoever is attacking you should probably not do that. 
I want to ask you more about the understanding of the self in relationship to pride, but before we do that, I want to say that in this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Jessica Tracy, a professor of psychology at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada, about her book, Take Pride, Why the Deadliest Sin Holds the Secret to Human Success. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Jessica, can you tell us about the developmental understanding of self in very early childhood? Yes. Basically, when we're born, we don't have a fully developed sense of self. We probably have very minimal sense of self at birth. But over the course of childhood, this changes. You know, it starts with kids being able to distinguish between themselves and others, and that's, that's a big deal to, to realize that I have a sense of self, I have a self that's different from you. This comes with mirror self-recognition. That's kind of one of the first pieces of evidence that kids have a sense of self is when they look in the mirror and rather than just think it's another baby, which is what babies do, around 18 months of age, instead, they actually know that that's them. And and psychologists have demonstrated this in really neat ways with the rouge test. They put a bit of rouge on the baby's nose. Prior to 18 months, the baby won't think anything of it. Maybe we'll laugh at that other baby. But somewhere around 18 months to two years old, the baby will actually touch his or her nose which suggests that they, they understand that that's me. And, and the self continues to develop from there. You get higher levels of self-development through about three and four when kids really are kind of realizing I'm my own person, I'm not my parents. Um, and then with that comes the understanding that in addition to making my parent proud of me, which is kind of the first thing that happens between three to five, later on it is a shift to I want to be proud of myself. And that's a really big and very important transition for understanding pride, that it's not just I want to do the right thing so that my mom will like me or my mom will be proud of me, but rather I want to do the right thing because I want to be a certain kind of person. And that happens with socialization, internalization of society's norms, you know, learning what your parents want from you, learning what kind of person your society wants you to be, and, and the, the ability to understand that you do have the sense of self that's different from everyone else and that you can shape, you can improve upon. Professor Jessica Tracy, let's discuss cumulative cultural evolution in relationship to pride. That's the evolution of cultures. That's when cultural knowledge, uh, institutions, wisdoms, belief systems build upon each other and, and basically progress. And it's the way in which you know, our society has amazing technological inventions, art, uh, historical understandings. Basically, all of our belief systems are the result not just of our own culture, but of in the evolution of cultural ideas over time. So how does that fit in to your studies with pride? Well, what I argue in the book is that pride is sort of the emotion that underpins cultural evolution, um, that, that in order to have cultural evolution, uh, you need to have a number of processes. You need to have uh, people who want to develop skills, who want to come up with new ideas and figure out the best way to do various things, right? How to build a good canoe, how to build an iPhone. And then you need to have um, people who are willing to teach others those skills, because a big part of cultural evolution is passing cultural knowledge on to others. And then you need to have a way to figure out who to learn from, right? Everyone else in the society needs to learn from the people who are the best social models, because if you just learn from anyone, you're going to get a lot of bad information as well. And what's interesting is that pride actually is relevant to each of those three processes. So pride is what motivates us to achieve, the reason that we work hard to come up with new inventions and and creative works of art is because we want to feel pride. Um, In in the book, I talk about some evidence for that. So that's piece one. And then then pride is also the thing that sort of promotes desire to teach others. And that's because 
authentic pride underlies a, a particular kind of status known as prestige. Prestigious leaders are people who have a lot of wisdom or skills, or competencies that others value, and they get power as a result of this, not only because they're so skilled, but because they're willing to share their skills with others. They're willing to teach others what they know. And that's a really critical thing, that prestigious leaders lose power if they become unwilling to help others. So teaching others is actually sort of a central prerequisite for having prestige. Again, pride underlies prestige. Authentic pride is a big part of, of what uh, it's sort of the emotion that facilitates the attainment of prestige. And then finally, the way that we know who to follow, who to copy, um, who to learn from is by looking for people who show pride. And, and we've done studies where we found that when people are looking for information, if they're in a situation where they need to learn from, from someone else in their group and they see someone who's displaying pride, they will choose to copy whatever that person says. They'll copy that person's answer to a difficult question more so than the answer of someone who's showing any other emotion, emotion like happiness, for example. They're more likely to copy the answer of the person showing pride. And that suggests that the pride expression is essentially a signal of expertise and wisdom. And you're saying that the expression of pride is head back, chest out, and hands spread at the sides or above the shoulders. That's exactly right. Uh, do we see it in other uh, forms of pride, particularly in a conversation like this between us and our listeners who are eavesdropping? Can they pick up pride uh, that you have, for example, in the work that you've done on the study of pride? Do you mean like in the voice or, or that sort of thing, or just in the, in the kinds of things that people say? Is that both voice okay. and, and content, because that's what uh, a listener to this conversation would uh, capture. Yeah, well, there is some evidence for a vocal burst, <laughs> a sound that people make um, when they're feeling a sense of achievement. I'm not sure if that's pride. The study that looked at this referred to it as, as achievement, and I think that's probably a narrow form of pride. People make a certain vocal intonation uh, in those situations, apparently. Um, but other than that, you know, yeah, absolutely. I think we can use people's language as, as a way of figuring out whether they're feeling pride. You know, if people talk about accomplishments they had, for example, using words like I, you know, I did that, that's, that's clearly conveying a sense of pride. And certainly conveying hubristic pride, which is the more arrogant form of pride, that can be conveyed through language right? when people start bragging, talking about their successes in a way that's sort of culturally or socially inappropriate or exaggerating how great they are. That's, that's also part of pride, and I think that's definitely something that we can, we can infer from, from listening. So you talk about what pride looks like to the observer and sounds like to the listener, and you talk about when people feel pride. What does pride feel like based on your research? Well, again, there are two kinds of pride, and, and they feel quite different. Um, so authentic pride, which is sort of the good pride, it basically involves feelings of accomplishment, right? It's that sense that you've worked hard, you've, you've put really, you've put the effort in, and as a result, you've achieved something, and you've achieved something that's important to yourself. It's, it's something that's related to the kind of person that you want to be, and it makes you feel like you're sort of becoming more like the person that you want to be. So it's a really pleasurable feeling. In fact, it's one of the most pleasurable emo emotions to experience. Hubristic pride feels very different. Hubristic pride is really a sense of arrogance and egotism. So it almost might seem like a negative emotion. It's not. I mean, I think it is a pleasurable feeling, but there is an awareness that, yeah, I'm, I'm being arrogant right now. I feel like I'm better than others, and I know that that's arrogant and conceited. Um, and, and people who are feeling hubristic pride, that's what they say. They say they feel a sense of arrogance and, and conceitedness. And it's, it's very much involved in an extreme self-focus, uh, putting the self above others, for example, 
caring more about the self than others. So in the United States, uh, uh, the nation where you grew up and uh, received your college and graduate degrees uh, prior to moving to Canada, uh, we had an election here uh, this week. And my question is, how do you anticipate the way pride has been exhibited uh, or not exhibited in the United States as a result of the election of Donald Trump? What I'm seeking is, one, the American people, uh, yourself included, uh, to the extent that you would include yourself. And and then I'd like to move on to um, Donald Trump, because he has represented uh, pride in the two categories which you have described to us. The American people, I think, who voted for Trump are probably feeling a great deal of pride in that candidate. You know, I'm not one of them, so it's hard for me to say what they're feeling, but my guess is that they identify with with him, or at least they believe they identify with him. I mean, it's interesting. He got a lot of votes from middle-class Americans, and he's certainly not a middle-class American by any means, but he was able to make middle-class Americans feel that he was one of them, feel that he really represented them and their needs. And and I think that's because of, you know, the dissatisfaction that a lot of Americans have felt for various reasons um, with with the prior government, the current government. Um, And so Trump came in and sort of suggested that he was going to take on that government and fight it, and and he made it really clear that he was a fighter, uh, an attacker. And and so I think there probably is a sense of pride in knowing that the candidate that they fought for in various ways has succeeded. And how about uh, those who voted for uh, Hillary Clinton and voted for the first female candidate for president in the history of the United States. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think there's a tremendous amount of pride in voting for the first woman president. You know, I think that's an incredibly meaningful thing to do. As a, as a female American, I can tell you, you know, I was very proud to have the opportunity to do that. Um, but then it is pretty upsetting when, when she doesn't win. And, you know, whether she didn't win because she's a woman or I, I don't know that that's the case. I think there were a lot of things that happened in that election. Um, but I don't, you know, can you still feel pride after she's lost? I think there's a sense in which she handled herself really well. I know that watching her um, her her speech in which she conceded, I felt a sense of pride just in the fact that here she is having gone through what has to be, you know, a paralyzing and just incredibly difficult thing. She didn't know she was going to lose. You know, every poll had her well in the lead. So to go through that, you know, for years and years, this being the second time she's run for president, just the pain and agony of that, knowing she'll probably never have another chance to run for president, you know, and then to get up there and, you know, so graciously concede, I I felt a great deal of pride in that. Going back to the title and the cover on your book, you have the um, tail, uh, the, the head and the tail of a peacock which has often been used as an example of a creature with pride when he spreads his feathers. This probably won't surprise you to know that as the author, I didn't have a tremendous amount of say in the cover. (laughs) Um, The publisher, they made that decision, but I I really loved it. I think the design team that did the cover did a fantastic job. I think it's beautifully done. And And I love the peacock and that the tail is down. I actually think that's a really neat feature of it that, you know, traditionally it's the proud peacock with the tail up that represents pride. But the message of the book is that pride is not one-sided. It's not just this great thing that we should show all the time, that actually pride can get us into a tremendous amount of trouble if it's experienced in the wrong way, shown in the wrong way, in the wrong situations or settings. And I think having the tail down 
sort of suggests that. It conveys that pride is more complex than you might have expected. And how has writing this book, Take Pride, changed you? Huh. Um, you know, it's funny. I think I've been doing the research that made up this book for many years. You know, it's hard to say that writing the book was a change. You know, I've, I've been a researcher doing this work. I mean, I started grad school in, in 1999. This has kind of been my career. And the book is sort of a culmination of all that. I think, you know, taking the time to really focus on telling a story about my work and, and tying it all together and figuring out what's most important, what are the most exciting and interesting messages of the research I've done, that's been really useful just for me as a psychologist, as a researcher, thinking about which findings are going to have the most meaning for, for the story that I want to tell. Well, Professor Jessica Tracy, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask a couple more questions about you. And the first one is, can you share with us a eureka or an aha moment that changed your life or your view of the world? Sure. For me, this moment was basically I had graduated from college on the East Coast, and I'd moved to the West Coast, to San Francisco with some friends, mainly just to sort of live on the West Coast. I'd never done that. I wasn't really sure what I was going to do with my career, and I got a job as a barista at a cafe, and I loved it. I was really enjoying myself. I met lots of interesting people, but somewhere somewhere uh, after about a year of doing this, I sort of had this moment where I realized that my life, I wasn't living it the way that I wanted to be living it. I wasn't accomplishing things in the way that I really wanted to. And I sort of thought back to when I was in college. Some friends and I in college had started a political news magazine together. And it didn't last very long. I think we only put together a few issues, and then we all went our separate ways for various reasons. But while we were working on that political magazine, there was just this feeling. We'd stay up late nights, making sure we had all the articles, laying things out, figuring out what we wanted to say in the editorial. And we had this goal. We thought what we were doing was so important. You know, we were spreading this political, political news to the college campus that we saw as somewhat apathetic at the time. And just the feeling that we were doing something that felt incredibly important was a feeling I really missed. Um, and, I, and I would say that feeling is pride. That feeling is a desire for pride, and it's something that, that we all experience. We all want to feel good in, in that way, satisfied with who we are and, and what we're doing with our lives. And it's a feeling I wasn't getting as, as a barista in that cafe. As much as I was enjoying life and, and very comfortable and, you know, very <laughs> having no anxiety or stress, I was missing that feeling of accomplishment. And so it was that realization that actually motivated me to go to grad school, um, go ahead and get my PhD and, and become a psychological scientist. And what would you like to do with the remainder of your one precious life? I feel incredibly lucky that um, I'm a professor at a university with great students and great graduate students, and I have the opportunity to do all kinds of studies that you know allow people to better understand the mind and, and to choose what studies that I want to do for the most part and my graduate students want to do and kind of research interesting topics and, and then work with intelligent students to, um, to figure them out. So I, just, I feel incredibly lucky to be able to do that for the rest of my life. And finally, Jessica Tracy, is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners? The book I always recommend to people um, is a bit of an older book. It's, I think, 1998-ish, something like that. Um, but it's one of my all-time favorite books. It's Steven Pinker's book called The Blank Slate. And I think if you haven't read it and you want to know a bit about evolutionary science, and evolutionary psychology, it's absolutely the book to go to because it kind of lays out the foundation of how scientists view the mind as, as a uh, product of evolution and, and also the history behind it and the intellectual history of how, 
how that wasn't always the way that scientists saw things and how things have changed. So it's really interesting from a historical perspective and from a scientific perspective. Professor Jessica Tracy, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Dr. Jessica Tracy is a professor of psychology at the University of British Columbia and the author of Take Pride, Why the Deadliest Sin Holds the Secret to Human Success. Her research shows that pride is an emotion experienced and similarly expressed by all human beings, chest expanded, shoulders back, and a broad smile. The book Jessica Tracy recommends is The Blank Slate, The Modern Denial of Human Nature by Steven Pinker. This program was recorded on November 11, 2016.